In Sunday school earlier, uh, Elder Lubke was asked a question about uh, giving and the uh, situation that we have with giving. And he gave an answer, and I thought, well, that's it. I can just uh, tell everybody we can go home after the, the introduction to the service. But I'm going to amplify his comments a little bit, although he did a wonderful job of answering. We're returning this morning to this portion of Malachi to pick up where uh, the exposition of this section where we left off two weeks ago. If you missed that message uh, you're, and you're interested in it, it's available on YouTube and Sermon Audio, and we're glad to have those uh, possibilities for people to hear what we've said and preached and taught. I mentioned uh, then, that that is two weeks ago, that this passage, both as to its exposition and its application, requires a little time. And I also offered an apology at that time. It's difficult for pastors to preach on this subject, but as I said then, I'm afraid that I've done you a disservice by not doing so more regularly. And so uh, uh, by not preaching on the importance of giving, and uh, for the work of the Lord, um, as it particularly relates to the church, um, I think it has caused a problem, and we want to address that in part this morning. I also pointed out that this particular minor prophet, Malachi, is a powerful one, and that you can't earnestly and honestly go through it without coming face-to-face -face with what it means to serve the Lord from the heart in various ways. It's just here in this, in this prophet's comments and the, the way the Lord speaks through the prophet. Now, we began with verse 6 uh, two weeks ago, which deals with God's immutability and his changelessness. Verse 6 says, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And this verse captures an important aspect of what it said in the verses leading up to it, and it reflects on everything that follows through the rest of the book of Malachi. On the one hand, for the believer, God promises refinement. That's what's set before us in this passage. And on the other hand, he warns the unbeliever and the rebellious that he is ever the enemy of sin and that those who remain in their sins will find him to be so. Now, it's this refining work that preserved Israel as a nation, and it's this refining work that preserves the church today. The church stands, the gates of hell do not prevail against it, it doesn't destroy itself, not because of our sinless faithfulness, but because of God's promised covenant love and faithfulness. That's what preserves the church from one generation to another. Now, God's people need to be reminded of this here in Malachi because their hearts had grown cold and hard. You see that reflected in the conversations that are going on between the Lord and his people here throughout this whole book. They made the sad assumption that because they were sinning with impunity and there seemed to be no consequence that either God was not ever going to judge them or 
you know, that somehow he didn't really mean what he said, or that God is not judging, therefore it doesn't matter. He's just, he just doesn't judge. And so there's not going to be any consequences. There aren't any consequences. So it doesn't matter. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that mindset, as we pointed out, brings the difference between two things, two attitudes. One views the immediate lack of judgment as license or liberty. God's not going to judge anybody for anything, so we're free to do what we want. There's no accountability. There's no responsibility, so we don't have to respond to his word. While the other tends to be discouraging and disappointing. We see people continuing to sin. There doesn't seem to be any consequence, so what's the point? And that becomes a matter of depression or disappointment at least. Now, this impact applies to promises and blessings as well. Some see the delay of these as they serve the Lord, and, and to them it indicates that living for the Lord and trying to do what he commands is futile. Why, why do it? We're, we see those who are sinning. There's no consequence for their sin. Here we are struggling to do what's right, and we don't see the blessing that's promised. So why be even involved in this? And as a result of that, will grows weak and hands get tired. Now, the truth is that the changeless God is always going to act in perfect concert with who he is. Even though judgments and blessings may seem to be delayed in our eyes or perhaps even forgotten. It's a mistake to think that that delay means that God has forgotten what he's going to do or doesn't have any intention to do what he says he's going to do. Because Jehovah is omnipotent and sovereign, he's able to do all that he intends in his own time, in his own way. Nothing can hinder or delay him, and therefore, as Richard Stock says, he is in himself and in his decrees unchangeable. There is no need, no occasion, no circumstance which requires him to do anything differently than he intends. So he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And that brought us to an outline of the remaining section here. That's the unchangeable, immutable part of God. Now we come to the outline of verses, beginning with verse 7. So the first thing we have in verse 7 is a general charge of disobedience and spiritual decay, and a call to reformation. Then in verse 8, we have the specific sin of neglecting tithes and offerings, offered or cited in answer uh, to the challenge of the people. And then in verses 9 through 12, we have a call for reformation in this particular matter, and a promise of blessing in that event. Now, we start with that verse 7, the, the general charge of disobedience and spiritual decay and the call to reformation. So Malachi 3.7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from your, my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, 
we went over two weeks ago the design and purpose of Scripture. We began by reminding ourselves about that purpose. Why God has preserved his word down to our day. Why are we reading Malachi which, uh, and studying it, which is something that was written uh, hundreds of years before Christ was born? Why are we looking at it? And the, it's true that this prophecy had an application to the times and circumstances of the people to whom it was directly spoken and written at the time. And God has made it also, though, abundantly clear that these things were written not just for them, but for our admonition and our instruction, for the purpose and blessing of the church for as long as it exists. In Romans 15.4, there Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So when we look at something like this passage in Malachi, we realize that it's not just written for the time, but it's written for all time, especially for the people of God in that regard. As we began to take that then and take it apart, the seventh verse, we went through it incrementally. We agreed that the first thing it says is true in general terms. Our fathers sinned, and so do we. And that's the truth. That is a timeless truth. That's not to say that uh, our fathers and we are not saved, but even the saved are sinners. Even though it may not be with the same hopeless willfulness or impunity of the unbeliever, we sin. Now, in the context here of Malachi, however, the prophet isn't referring to general sinfulness or the general sinfulness of all mankind, but the specific willful disobedience of both their fathers and their own generation. And it's necessary that when you look around you, you understand that you're sinners just like other men and women, and that it's only because of God's mercy that you and I are not consumed by and because of our sins. That has always been true. It remains true. We have one means of pardon. Our pardon for sin arises from God's mercy. All sin is against God. He, he alone can pardon sin, and he par mercifully pardons it in and through Jesus Christ. If anyone is not consumed by and because of his or her sin, it's because of divine mercy, not personal merit. So all of those things we covered last time. And then we pointed out that the problem was both sins of omission and commission. We noticed that there's a twofold nature to their sins here. They turned aside from what they were supposed to do and they did not keep the Lord's statutes. So two things were laid at their feet. One, they turned aside and did what was forbidden, and then they didn't do or neglected to do what was commanded. And we just made the statement at that time that deliberate inaction is an action, and therefore sin when it's exercised in something that is known to be good. If we know we're supposed to be doing something, if we know God's word commands us to do something, 
and we do not do it, we deliberately do not do it, then that's sin. In James 4.17, James puts it this way. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So it's not just doing something that's forbidden. It's not doing something that's commanded that falls under the category of sin. And we talked about being careful about not judging our godliness or our service to Christ in negative terms alone. If, and we use the example, we said if one thinks he or she is righteous because they've never committed adultery, but they're at the same time, they have failed to love their spouse as God commands, the one is drawing, uh, that, that person who's making that, that assumption is drawing a, a, a harmful sense of self-righteousness from the negative alone and not recognizing sin in its true character. They're not just not sinning by not committing adultery, they're sinning by not treating their wife or their husband as God commands. So it works both ways in that regard. And that's the true character of sin. Now in the case before us here in Malachi, they were not giving of their substance to idols any longer. They had been following that practice in former generations. They had been giving what belonged to the Lord to idols. Well, they had come back from the um, Babylonian captivity and were no longer doing that in quite the way that their parents did, but they weren't giving as they were called on to the things of the Lord. And so the Lord is bringing forth their guilt on the basis of their not doing what they were supposed to do. Then comes this beautiful call to repentance. And we spent time looking at the beauty and tenderness of it. And we pointed out that it's the very voice of the prodigal son's father. Saying, return to me and I'll return to you. Matthew Henry paraphrases it in this way. Return unto me and your duty. Return to your service. Return to your allegiance. Return as a traveler that's missed his way, as a soldier that has run from his colors, as a treacherous spouse that has gone away. Return, thou backsliding Israel. Return to me, and I will return to you. It's so beautifully put. I'll return to you, and what's implied there, with all my love and all my care, all my blessing and all my mercy, all my protection and all my provision, just return to me. And of course, that was followed then by their denial. Rather than repenting and returning to the Lord, they deny their guilt and they demand God to prove that they are guilty in any way, claiming that they did not need to repent and to return to God because they had never left off obedience, being Guilty unto themselves of no sin, no transgression, or falling away from God. Now, that conclusion was possible on their part, in part, because they were ignorant of the true nature of the law and of the character of their own hearts. They had no sense, says Richard Stock, of the strictness, the extent, 
and the spiritual nature of God's law, nor of the spirit of rebellion that was translating into neglecting what was required by the will of God. Now that brings us to the specific charge, the specific sin of neglecting tithes and offerings offered or cited in answer to the challenge of the people, or verse 8. In verse 8, they make this challenge, show us where we have to return to you. Prove it. Show us where we have to do that. And the Lord responds quickly with the question, will man rob God? And then he goes from there and says, yet you are robbing me. Then he says, but you say, how have we robbed you? And the Lord answers immediately in tithes and contributions. And there's something dramatic here, beloved, in the swiftness with, with, with which God replies. You see it? They, they make their demand. And he is relating this uh, in a form of a dialogue to them and to us through his prophet rather than actually carrying it on with him. So we don't want to see this as an exchange going on. He's talking to his people, and they're answering him directly back. He's putting it in the form of a dialogue so that they can see what's transpiring between them and him in their hearts. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And so he abruptly and forcefully answers their rising objections. They say wait a minute, what do we have to repent of? What do we have to return to you about? And he answers immediately with no introduction, you're, rob you're robbing me. If we remove it from its poetic form and uh, state it in more common language, it sounds like this. God says, you and your fathers are perpetual sinners. Repent, seek forgiveness by grace, and abandon your sin, and I will receive you. Israel responds, what do you mean? We're not sinning against you. Prove it. God says, you're thieves. Stop it. See how he goes right to the point? You're thieves. Stop it. There's no long introduction or explanation. And they say, we're thieves, how are we robbing you? God's answer is in tithes and contributions. In fact, you're cursed with a curse because of it. As we begin to look at this more carefully, I want to share three things with you. As you see the abruptness of this conversation, it's not like God has to stand back and say, oh, they've challenged me, and uh, they've asked me now, how are they sinning? Um, what can I come up with? that can make them see that they're sinning. They say, what do you mean? What do we have to repent? Because you're thieves. <laughs> he answers right back, right away. No hesitation in the response. And there's three things I want you to look at in this. And the first is the law and, admonition and, and admonitions of the Lord are neither conditional or reciprocal. Now, what do we mean by that? By saying they're not conditional, um, we're saying that when it says you shall not steal, it doesn't mean you shall not steal unless you see something you really want. 
That's not the way the commandment is. It's not conditional. Thou shalt not steal. Unless you see something you really think you want. Not that way. Or something that unless you are the government with the power to do so with impunity, or because you think you deserve what someone else has more uh, else has than that that you want they have more than you have they want you want what they have or because in your minds it's just in some way there's no condition on this you shall not steal unless you have the power to do so if you have the power to do so well, then it's okay it's thou shalt not steal unless somebody has more than you think they ought to have or you shall not steal unless you think that it's just to do so. It means simply, don't steal. And to do so is sin against God and the person or persons from whom you steal. That's it. It's, it's not conditional. There's not reasons why you can set that commandment aside or set the admonitions of God aside. And they're not reciprocal either. And that we mean that they are um, not to be perceived of as deals. As if God is saying here, please don't steal. And if you promise not to steal, I'll make sure you have everything you want and desire. As if this was some kind of agreement God was making. Look, I don't want you to steal, so please promise me you won't steal. And then if you don't, then I promise I'll give you what you need. You do right by me, and I'll do the right thing by you. That's not the way the commandments work. Now, we are to obey because it is the will of God and to do otherwise is to rebel against God, and it's sinful. And we are required to do what God commands regardless of circumstances. For example, children are not to honor their mother and their father um, because they think they're worthy of it. They're to do it because God commands it. There's nothing in that commandment that says anything about the quality or the actions of parents. Parents have their own commandments that they have to answer to. And they relate to them as parents. And they don't say anything about children. Fathers are not to provoke their children to wrath. They're not to do it. Whether the children are exasperating or not. Now, if the child is just hard to deal with, the father's still not supposed to push that child towards wrath, even though that child might be hard to work with. There's not this exchange going back and forth. The commands are there for us to obey. Now, in the context here, we have the omission. So let's just put this principle to play in this context that is robbing of God, the robbing of God that was taking place because the people of God were neglecting the support of the temple and its services. That's what they were doing. They were called on to give tithes and offerings. That was the command of the Lord. Now, why were they neglecting this? 
Well, the command on this matter is clear, but the obedience was lacking. And we can't definitively say why, but it seems that the people in general were of a mind that they just couldn't afford it. And they weren't giving as they were commanded to give because they didn't feel like they could afford it. That is, in their judgment, they didn't have the extra funds or the surplus supplies available to obey God. And so they weren't giving for that reason. Now we bring our principle into play here. The law is not conditional. Breaking it down to simple terms, if they had a dollar, they were supposed to give 10 cents. And if they had $10, they were supposed to give one. If someone else had $1,000, the person with one wasn't excused from giving their 10 cents because another person was giving $1,000. That's not the way the law applies. The law applies to me with my $1. Out of that, I need to give 10. Now, we're talking about in the times in which Malachi is writing here. I am... I am obligated to give what the law calls on me to give, whether I have a dollar or a thousand dollars, whether I have 10 cents or a million dollars, it still applies to every one of us. Neither did it matter that the temple had $10,000 in the treasury. The person who had a dollar was still to give his or her 10 cents. They weren't supposed to look and say, come, come to the temple and say, well, I've got my tithe here, but, oh, look at the treasury. It's full of gold and silver. I don't have all that. All I've got is this, this dollar here. And say, I'll, I'll just keep the 10 cents because the treasury's full. They had an obligation to give that 10 cents out of that dollar even though the treasury was full. They weren't to have their eyes in the treasury. They were to have their eyes on what God required of them. They also had a commitment to keep in regards to their prospering, not according to the abundance, but according to what was providentially provided. And by that, I mean that they weren't supposed to look at how they prospered and say, Well, we were expecting, I'm trying to put this just in simple terms. We were expecting to make a dollar, but we made two dollars, so now we're supposed to give a gift because we got extra. The dollar was provision. And on that provision, there was supposed to be a response from the people, a response of thanksgiving. Those who received these tithes and offerings had clear responsibilities on how they were to be received and how they were to be used. And God would hold them accountable accordingly like he did the sons of Eli. But as far as the people were concerned, it was their duty to give in accordance with the law and the admonition of the Lord. Now, we find an instructive example in all of this if we look over at 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 
This is where the, the um, collections are being made for the building of the temple, eventually at the hands of Solomon. And we read here in 1 Chronicles 29 with, at verse 1, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and therefore make sure you don't give too much. Did you see that in the passage there? Those words? Make sure you don't, make sure, you know, think about whether you ought to give your tithe or not or give to this project or not, because he's young and inexperienced. doesn't say that. He's young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the whole holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? That last statement is amazing, isn't it? David says, here's all I've given more than anybody else could give. Look at all the gold and silver and bronze and iron and precious gems and so on that I've brought in for this project. Now, who else wants to give? Is what he says. Not so you don't need to. It's all taken care of. Instead, he says, who else wants to give? Who else wants to help provide? And you notice that despite the riches already accumulated and gathered in, David calls on the people to commit themselves to add to them. And there's no way you can read this and say that David means look at all that's already been gathered and decide if you need to help or not. You can't read that into these words. It's not what he's saying. No, he's clearly saying, look at all we have. Join us and give too for the glory of God, for the furtherance of the work and for your own blessing. David is looking at this and he's seeing how tremendous of a blessing this has been on him. And he's saying, what about you? Don't you want to have this blessing too? Don't you want to enter into this with me and rejoice in these things together? Then verse 6, he says, then the leaders of, it says, I should say, then the leaders of fathers' houses made their free will offerings as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 um, derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. 
And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. What is the grounds of the people's rejoicing here? Is it how full the treasury looks? No, they're rejoicing because they were able to give. And notice it carefully. They weren't rejoicing because there were now so many precious gems available, because there were so many ingots of gold or silver. Look at the, the, at the testimony of verse 9. The people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. That's where the joy was coming from. That's where the blessing was coming from. The freedom of their giving. Now look at verse 10. Therefore David blessed the, the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is yours in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Excuse me, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. David is stunned by what has happened. And he's rejoicing because the people were enabled by the Holy Spirit to give willingly or freely. They weren't concerned with how much was in the treasury, but with how much they could give, and the honor it was to be privileged to do so. And King David joins them, beloved, and here you see part of the purpose in this. The poorest, who could only give but a mite, can rejoice with the king. Do you see that? Does that make sense to you? Here's the king rejoicing in all that he's been able to give, and it's a lot. But here's someone else who hasn't much, but they've been able to give like the king and to see how God would use that for his glory. And so even though theirs is just a mite, the, the blessing, the result of it, the privilege of it, belongs to them just as it does to the king. And so this temple isn't just the king's work. It's the work of the humblest person who could give the smallest amount, but who gave from their heart. And they had that great privilege. The emphasis wasn't on how much each gave, but that each was privileged by grace to give. And that's what Jesus had in mind when in Mark we read about the widow's might. Jesus sat down, we're told in Mark 12, 41, opposite the treasury, 
and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which, made, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to them, and he said to them, to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so actually, she's greater than the king. Because you remember what David said? He said, I have, I've given all this, and I still have a lot more. <laughs> I still have a lot more. And I'm going to give that too. And this woman had given everything. Now David goes on saying in verse 15, For we, are, we were strangers, we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously too. I see the same uprightness in them in their giving. We want to focus on the importance of the 17th verse. David acknowledges that it's in the call to give that the Lord was testing the hearts of himself and of his people. We get a sense of what this test for uprightness refers to when we go to 1 Kings chapter 9 and verses 2 through 5. We read there that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, <coughs> doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne for Israel, over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The term implies voluntarily giving, and that was a part of the worship of the Lord since the days of the tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 35, verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything to the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. So now we come back to Malachi and the theft. When we return to Malachi, the sin was that not only were these people neglecting the free will offerings, but, that is the, but they were also neglecting the required tithes and offerings. So they were neglecting what was specifically commanded and what was open to them to do 
from the free will of their heart as it was commanded by the Lord. And the Lord sees that and considers it theft. Theft because, as David says, all things come from God and it's only of his own will, of his own, excuse me, that we give to him. Now, rather than trying to make every point this morning, I'm going to stop with this one and we'll pick up with others next time, Lord willing. But there's a couple of things to be considered in the way of application. The first is that the age of grace did not end the admonition to give and support the kingdom, the work of the kingdom. That admonition still stands. And the scripture calls on God's people to make free will offerings. Some people look at the age of grace and they say that the tithe that was implemented in the Old Testament for the support of the church carries over into the New Testament and that it is wise and good to give a tenth. Others look at that and say the tenth is just a suggestion at this point and we're free to give more. And in the age of grace, all of the law is expanded and it should be giving whatever you want. But 10 is a, is a suggestion in that way. And others say it doesn't apply anymore at all. Well, even to those who don't believe that, it, who believe that it doesn't apply anymore at all, that doesn't take away the admonition to support and give to the work of the church, which is found throughout the New Testament. Every member promises to support the church when he or she becomes a member. And that intent should be honored earnestly and realistically. It should be. And if it's not being done, that's wrong. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, Paul says, The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The assumption there is that there has been a decision to give something regularly or the support in the work of the church. Secondly, the giving should be upon the first fruits and the intent of the heart and not whether we think we can afford it or not. And I realize that temptation. I've had that temptation myself at times. The temptation to think that it's if I can afford it, but it's not if we can afford it. The point is we can't afford not to. In 2 Corinthians 8.12, Paul writes there, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the readiness to give is based on what we have. So maybe we only have a dollar. But the readiness is to give some portion of that dollar because we've been given that by the Lord to the work of the Lord. It's far better, beloved, to give the widow's mite or penny than to withhold it as though it were a treasure not to be parted with at any cost. In Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 11, we read, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Thirdly, our eye in giving is not supposed to be focused on the treasury, but the duty and the privilege 
I can understand that some might look at the property the church owns, millions of dollars worth of property, and the balance in our account, and conclude that the church has much more than I do. The church and, and Elder Lubke referenced this this morning in his answer in Sunday school. We, we do have money. But I can see someone looking at that and being tempted by that to decide not to give or to give somewhere else or to only give on special occasions. But I would encourage you to go back to the scene with David. David was anxious that all the people have the opportunity to give so that they could all have a part in the joy and the blessing of doing so. And they weren't doing it according to what was in the treasury, but according to the opportunity to give to the work of the Lord. He wasn't encouraging them or discouraging them on the basis of balances, but on the prospect of privilege and blessing. In addition, while each one of us really believes that I should say, which one of us does really believe that we are the auditor that determines how much should be available for the work of the Lord. That's taking an awful lot upon yourself, isn't it? To say, well, I think they have enough. And to determine that it should go somewhere else. To be in a place where you can look at these things and say, it's enough. What would you do if your bank manager looked at your account and said, they've got enough, we need a new copier, I'm just gonna take this portion out of what's theirs and use it to buy the bank a new copier. Would you stand for that? You wouldn't, would you? You know you wouldn't. And it's the same thing in this sense. Um, we don't take for ourselves what really belongs to the Lord. And I want you to think, if you can, about this in the broader sense, beloved. Think, it, think of what a blessing it would be if our session could contact, could contact the session in Olympia and say, how can we help you build or acquire the new building you so much need? How can we help you do that? Or if there was some need on the home or, or foreign mission field, and we could say, here, God has prospered us by not only prospering his people, but by giving them a giving heart. Take this and use it for the needs you have. Let's think about what a blessing that would be. And you might say, well, we've got all this money. Can't we do that now? And I'll explain why in just a moment and as I conclude. The church that Bonnie and I grew up in and attended in our youth and she attended into her adult years gave 50% of its budget every year to missions. 50%. And there was no deficit spending. It was able to do that because every year the budget was placed before the people and then they were asked to make pledges in order to meet that budget. And if the pledges didn't meet the budget, the session, the trustees, came back to the congregation and said, we need people to pledge more. 
so that we can meet that budget. And they would go out to every member and ask them to do that, giving everyone an opportunity to have part in being able to support the work of the church and the work of missions around the world. I'm not advocating for what was called an every member canvas, but I'm encouraging you to seriously consider what you might do to assure that we meet the budget that the trustees are going to present next week. It, it may appear, because there's a deficit in it, that it's a bloated budget, but it's not, beloved. It's actually a trimmed one, despite the deficit we expect. But we're praying that God would be pleased to work in the hearts of all to give and contribute regularly so that we don't have to limit our efforts but expand them. So we're not looking at things and saying, how do we need to crimp in and, and pull back, but how can we do more? Right now, heritage needs to expand. The opportunity and the need are there. It's real. We can reach more people in our community in that service, but the funds aren't there to do that expansion. Well, wait a minute, we have millions, but it takes millions to do it. Now, if everyone is giving regularly, and I don't know what anyone's giving, if everyone is giving regularly for the support of the church and the work of the gospel, then that's all that can be asked. If that's so, then let this series be an encouragement to you and Keep your commitments before the Lord, and God will bless us all. But if that's not the case, then let it be a challenge to you. If you're a member, particularly, to fulfill the intent of your heart when you covenanted with the congregation to support the church, and consider what God might use you to do and provide by a commitment to support the work of the gospel from this place. Now, beloved, don't misunderstand me. That's why pastors hate to bring these kinds of messages. I am not in any way charging anyone with being tight or, or unwilling to give. This is a generous body. But the truth of the matter is, there is not the regular support that there ought to be from week to week. And if that was being done, these funds that we have could be looked at in a different way. They could be looked at as something that we could take on and, and do more with. You look at that 10th verse of Malachi chapter 3. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'm tempted to do more, but we're out of time, so I'm going to have to carry this on to next week. And I want to make sure that none of you think I'm preaching a health and wealth message here. I'll clarify why that's not the case next week, and neither is Malachi. But I want to make sure I touch on the last point of the four here. This does not preclude holding those accountable and who control the finances, um, holding them responsible for what takes place. So I'm not saying just give, 
The spirit of giving does not mean that we give and then shut our eyes. It means we give and then give the duty of financial responsibility to those we trust. And then having given it to those we trust, we pray for them. If you're worried about how money's being spent, instead of worrying about it, take your anxiety to the Lord and pray about it. Pray for those who have that responsibility and then require accountability of them. And that's what we do in our corporation meeting. We, we answer that accountability. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, uh, Paul said, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's not enough to be a steward if there be not an upright stewardship. Now the rule of an upright stewardship is to conduct oneself in it with fidelity, says Calvin. You have a reason to distrust, then don't stop giving, but remove those you distrust in a decent and orderly fashion and replace them with those that you think prove trustworthy. That's the way that should operate and conduct itself. We have to stop here next week. Lord willing, we'll take up and look at this and see why we're not preaching health and wealth. But there is a promise here. And that promise extends to all of those who give lovingly out of the intent of their heart for the work of the Lord. And we'll see how that unfolds, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the generosity of this congregation. Lord, it is often seen in particularly special offerings. There is a, a desire to, to give and to uh, provide for those special needs. But Lord, we are looking here and considering about the day-to-day -day operations of the church and what it takes to have these facilities and to undertake the various ministries that we have. And Lord, we pray that you would lay it upon all of our hearts to give and to give freely and willingly and lovingly. And Lord, to know together the joy that can be found in knowing that we have through our offerings and through our giving had a part in the ministry of the word and in the testimony of the truth. Father, I pray that that blessing may descend upon every heart because every heart has carefully considered what they give and how they give. And then, Lord, we pray that you would make those who are handling the funds responsible and accountable, Lord, in every way. We pray, Lord, that you give them wisdom and understanding, and, Lord, that let them act with fidelity. And, Lord, we pray that through whatever increase we find, we will be able to expand what we do. Right now, Lord, you know we have a committee looking at evangelism and what we can do to evangelize more. And Father, there are aspects of that that are simply financial in nature. <coughs> Lord, we will pray that you would provide for us so that we can meet those challenges and carry the gospel into our community and further around the world by your grace. We can help our brothers and sisters in their own efforts to build and to work for the kingdom. 
We thank you, Father, for the way you prosper us every day. And we pray, Lord, that we would show our thanksgiving by giving joyfully, thankfully, and freely. Bless these thoughts to our hearts and to this body. For Christ's sake, amen.